Hey, everybody. My name is Drew Baker. Welcome to The Brutal Podcast. On this show, I interview progressive winemakers, brewers, chefs, farmers, and other cool guests at my kitchen table. We tell stories and talk about our lives and interests, and we'll even touch on issues that are way bigger than food and wine. Nothing added, nothing taken out. On today's episode, I interview Michael Folk and Jason Malumed at MFW Wine Co. MFW is a wine distributor that operates in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Washington, D.C., and it was founded on the principle of empathy, where the needs of their producers, customers, and employees are always first. And also, full disclosure, I know Mike and Jason are wonderful people and that MFW is the best distributor in their footprint because we've worked together for <laughs> three years, I think. Three, three? I think it's been more than three years at this point, which is kind of crazy. Uh, yeah. That's a, that's a biased opinion, though. Yeah. yeah. Table so. <laughs> set. Well, welcome to the show, guys. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. Good to be here. Yeah. So uh, where are you all tuning in from? I'm in the uh, the dungeon here in Philadelphia, center uh, center city Philly. Okay, and I am in Astoria, Queens. All right, cool. I was going to ask you, and Jason asked if we can drink, um, if we can rock. That'll suit my needs. <laughs> it might make you guys seasick, but yeah, I'll warn you now about Mike's Zoom call <laughs> preferences. He's got a rocking chair in his office. So if you if you watch a screen too closely, you. Uh, might want to be careful. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Lose your equilibrium over time. <laughs> yeah. If it gets if come out of things and internal and like my, uh, what do I have here? Give you my watercolors. Oh, there okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Try to be considerate. Appreciate that. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, these are, uh, these are wild times. How, how are you guys doing? Uh, <laughs> I have a weekly call with our, uh, our Italian importer, Ernest of Portovino. And this has been, I don't know how many weeks ago he asked if we could have a weekly call. It it definitely hasn't been three months, but it's been maybe four or five weeks. And and today when he called me at nine 30 this morning, he's like, how you doing? I'm like, honestly, I think we're past the point where we have to do the warm up. We can just jump right in, you know? Right. Just jump. Hit me with it. <laughs> exactly. My answer is not going to be any different than it was last week. Probably. Right. Yeah. We're in a twilight zone where every day is sort of exactly like a repeat of the day before. Exactly. Um, I mean, that all said, let's be honest here. We're sitting indoors. Like I'm in air conditioning. We may have wine in front of us. We may not. All things considered. Right on. It's not terrible, you know. I th- effective, yeah. The, the, the future is unwritten, and it's certainly precarious. Um, but got to take it for what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's not lost on me, and I'm sure not on you either. That at the end of the day, like you know, there's an agricultural component, uh, you know, at the core of wine. But um, you know, in in a in in another sense, it's it's a luxury good. So we have to like always keep that in mind as well. Um, so I, I thought it would be cool um, if we kind of like, uh, you know, back the tape up a little bit. And, uh, you know, I, I personally would like to hear, you know, sort of like your your origin stories, like how you came into like as far back as you're comfortable going. Give us the cliff notes like, you know, <laughs> we're, like to get, get a, c- catch everybody up to speed. 
takes a swig of what, what, what are you drinking there, Jason? <laughs> oh man, I've got I pulled something off my my wall of whiskey back here for, for the, <laughs> oh nice. I've moved I've moved beyond wine already. It's it's you know nine. 13 p.m. here on the east right. coast. So I've, it's, I've got myself some uh, Catoctin Creek rye here as well. So we're all in the same boat. Nice. We got. I, well, I'm on the uh, some Michel Couvreur, some uh, some French whiskey. So this oh, is okay. a, a very uh, a rare Van Jean cask aged uh, whiskey. So all right. Well, in that case, you go, you go first. So to well, yeah, to answer your your first question, right? I mean, all things considered, we're good, right? I'm I'm drinking Van Jean cask whiskey right now, so it's <laughs> we're all right. Origin story. Uh, so <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. Um, I guess I first got into wine in, in college initially. So I was an economics major, but um, where I went to school, there's a, a really famous hotel school and they had a wine course, which uh, was the most failed course at the college that I went to. It was you know a class I met once a week on Wednesdays at 5 p.m., and it was like a big 500 person class and it was, you know, a pass fail course. And you had to answer, you know, 250 multiple choice questions about wine. And if you got a certain amount wrong, you failed the course. So most of my friends just, you know, went there and got drunk basically and used it as a pregame for, for Wednesday nights. But I always really loved it. So that's kind of where I started in wine and then actually went on and took some classes. They actually had a viticultural school. And so, you know, I actually made my own wine for my graduation dinner and was like kind of into it. Um, as an economics major, uh, I applied to 115 jobs on Wall Street. This was in 2009 when I graduated from college. So not the best time to be trying to go into Wall Street. <laughs> a little bit uh, reminiscent of kind of how things feel right now. Um, but anyway, got rejected from everything. And so basically came back home dejected and lived with my parents and did yoga and got yelled at by my parents and my girlfriend, who's now my wife, to try and find a job. And eventually I said, you know what, screw this. Um, and I'd always really loved wine. And so I basically just started cold calling vineyards in Pennsylvania, which is where I live. Um, and so that was my first job in the wine industry was I was working at a Pennsylvania winery. So little props for some East Coast wine. So it was, uh, you know, thrown into the fire. I was managing their tasting room. I was doing a little bit of sales, you know, to restaurants. I was, you know, doing business development and you know marketing for them, um, and that uh, turned into writing about wine, uh, which then I realized does not pay the bills at all. Um, so eventually decided I need to like take the next step, uh, and that's when I got my first sales job in wine. So I worked for the third largest distributor in Pennsylvania, um, working in center city, Philadelphia. Um, and so I was selling everything from Grand Cru Burgundy to yellowtail. So we used to sell yellowtail and sold Allure peach flavored Moscato and half bottles. Uh, but that's really where I learned all the, the craziness of, of Pennsylvania and all the weird wine laws that we have here. Um, and kind of got uh, an idea about what was going on and kind of really, you know, honed my, my sales ability there. Eventually got fed up with selling peach flavored Moscato and decided to go back to school. Uh, and that's actually when I met Mike. So I went back to business school in Philadelphia and was interestedly, you know, immediately like bored out of my mind. I wanted to get back into doing wine and working. <clears throat> and so I kind of just started reaching out to people randomly about, you know, wanting to do something and uh, met Mike, uh, who at that time had 
I don't know, what was it? One account in, in, in Pennsylvania that he was selling to um, and approached him. It was like, Hey, I would love to, you know, help expand beyond this one account in Pennsylvania. You know, I can help you. I know how to, you know, price things out and how to ship things here. Um, and that if was, I could just, if I could just jump in, I think you said, I see that you're selling the wine for more than you could be selling it for, and you're making less money than you could be making. That makes <laughs> yeah. sense to you. Yeah. It, it, I don't want to get too much in the nitty gritty of, uh, of how Pennsylvania works, but basically Mike was screwing things up and uh, I, I had to come in and, uh, and bail him out as usual. So, uh, <laughs> so that was where, uh, where it all started. But uh, now, uh, now here we are. What, Mike? I don't know. That was... Yeah, what, what year was this? Thirteen. That was in, we started, yeah, that was in twenty thirteen. Mm-hmm. So. Exactly. Yep. Um, yeah, I remember you. You came to our. I think at that point that was our third. No, that was our second, second. portfolio tasting. Right yeah. at Haven Haven's Kitchen. And Haven's Kitchen so. was the uh, the OG account in Philadelphia. No, this was a place in uh, in New York, which, uh, with all due respect to them, I maybe they're still open. I don't know. They actually never they never bought any wine from us. Um, I used to get I used, I got mad because we did two portfolio tastings there, and I'd be like, "You have you're buying wine from Savio Suarez, and we're doing our tastings here." Fuck. But we did two tastings there because it was a beautiful space, and. Um, I think, yeah, our first tasting was at Terroir Tribeca and we outgrew that pretty quickly. And then I don't remember if it was Michael Wheeler or how Haven's Kitchen came about, but it was in uh, in the Chelsea area, like off of 6th Avenue in the 20s. And a great space, great food. Um, we did two portfolio tastings there and then we finally decided that portfolio tastings didn't make sense for us. So we did our last portfolio tasting when? 15, Jason? think so yeah the, the death of the portfolio tasting but i met so jason came to our second portfolio tasting um after it wasn't, wasn't there from the beginning but no but but pretty soon into it so after explaining to me that i wasn't doing things correctly in the final <laughs> no, state but, of pennsylvania you still do uh portfolio tastings in pennsylvania right just not in new york we we do yeah I, now it's turned into more of a this past fall yeah. Now it's turned into more of like a party in, in Philadelphia too, but uh, who knows? I was, I was actually just thinking about that. I'm like, I wonder if we're going to be able to do our portfolio tasting this year. Cause it'll be, it'll be a little bit sad when we don't, but I, I I've got a feeling it's not going to happen sadly, not to get, not to get too down, but we still do one in, in Philly. So. Cool. Uh, Mike, what's your story, man? I mean, I grew up not too far from, from Jason, actually. I'm born and raised in Pennsylvania, southern Chester County, um, which is, I guess, about 35 or 40 minutes outside of Philadelphia, but very much uh, you know, a big juxtaposition from the city. The area that I grew up in was a super small town with one traffic light, super rural. My dad's like big into hunting and fishing, so you know, we could drive five minutes and do all of those sorts of things when I was growing up, which was really cool to have that exposure. Um, but on the flip side of it, my mother's family are from New York, um, came here from Europe in the forties. So throughout my life, I've been coming to New York, um, but grew up in a very rural area and sort of had this interesting mix of those two things. And 
pretty much from a young age knew that I wanted to live in New York. Um, maybe not necessarily knowing that I would put down roots there for the long term and, and have a business and all those sorts of things, but at least knowing that at some point I wanted to be here. And what brought me here was music. Um, so I moved to New York right out of high school, basically when I was 19 and went to music school and very quickly, um, just kind of immersed myself into, you know, the scene here. This was 1999, 2000. Um, and I was really fortunate to have some cool roommates who introduced me to their friends that just kind of went down this rabbit hole of, um, of native New Yorkers, guys from Brooklyn that were doing super interesting things in music. Um, and so that led, like, I think most people in our industry coming from an artistic background where you probably gravitate towards wine through necessity of working in restaurants. So that happened to me. Um, and I, I had no background in wine, like wine wasn't a part of like my culture at home growing up. So the first time I was working in like a real restaurant that had a wine program, I remember I was trailing someone and, uh, it was like my first time to go to the table and take their order. And they ordered a glass of something and I went over and like filled the glass up to the top. And the person that I was trailing was like, I'm sure the customer is going to love that, but (laughs) (laughs) the owner is not going to love that. So don't do that again. Um, so so from there on out, they took Sharpies and they marked the glass for you, right? Like <laughs> They marked the glass for me. I also couldn't open a bottle. I literally remember like practicing with a corkscrew, um, trying to get bottles open. So um, the last restaurant that I worked in was this place called The Minnow in Park Slope in Brooklyn. And, and it was great because small restaurant, um, it was a second job for me at that point. I had sort of like decided that making a living in music was probably not necessarily going to come to pass. Um, A lot of my friends who I was playing in bands with, et cetera, were bartending and basically just trying to make ends meet. So I was working temp jobs. And at this point I was working at the Minnow uh, part-time. So I'd work like all day in an office uh, and then I'd go to the Minnow at night. And that was kind of like my, education into wine because the the owner there um who i became friends with and ended up teaching his son drum lessons and yada yada um but he was buying some from some interesting distributors like skernick and Polaner. um so that gave me a little bit of insight into wine um and if you you know as sort of a benefit to working there you got a staff drink but also you could buy wine at cost Um, and one of my first forays into that was like working the Christmas Eve. He did this, um, like seven fishes thing. And that night I was a food runner. So I was having to keep track of each table and where they were in their sort of like journey through the, uh, the seven fishes. And I just worked my ass off and he knew like I needed to go and get to an Amtrak train to get home down to Pennsylvania for Christmas. So I busted my ass and he let me off and he gave me this bottle of Bonnie Dune Riesling um, that I then, you know, I, I probably had like a glass of it and then fell asleep on the train. But he was really generous just in, in that way. Um, and so that kind of inspired my interest in wine. Um, and I just started drinking wine and going to places like Aster. Um, 
and buying things randomly that I could afford. Uh, and at some point, I remember I started taking notes, like keeping this catalog of wines. And I've gone back to it. And it was it's interesting because I can see where, you know, I was buying things that I probably wouldn't necessarily gravitate towards today. Because um, that's what happens. You become an asshole and you become... <laughs> <laughs> an asshole about what you drink, and but then you know who's behind the wine and who's importing it, and you're like, I right. can't buy that. <laughs> exactly. Um, you you look behind the curtain, and then you just can't do it anymore. For sure. But what's interesting was, if I look back, there's like this mix of things, but like in all of that, there's like an, a rare, like Louis Dresner import, you know, or like a Kermit Lynch import. So these things that. Um, you know, that unbeknownst to me were what I would gravitate towards later. Um, and so I was kind of at this point in my mid twenties where I was sort of like accepting the idea that I'm probably not going to have a career in music because like when I came to New York in the late nineties, I still actually can remember like getting paid to do gigs, you know, like there was a brief moment where there was live music happening. Um, and I was, you know, able to kind of like take advantage of that. I had some teachers at school who kind of took me under their wing. And so there was sort of this moment of like, maybe I can do this. Um, but then that morphed into teaching and all this like supplemental income. And ultimately by my mid twenties, it was sort of like, this doesn't seem like a realistic career path. Um, and I was finding myself interested in wine, but sort of like not really knowing what opportunities there were within the industry beyond being a SOM or like working retail. Those are the two things in my mind that you could do. And by happenstance, I ran into someone one day, like literally on a subway platform <clears throat> that I had known when I first moved to New York, friends of my, my roommates. And he said, Hey, I'm working for this wine distributor. And he gave me his card. Um, and it was for planner selections. And I called him a little while later and I was like, I'm, I'm interested in what you're doing. Um, can I come pick your brain one day? And he invited me over to his apartment. And this was, I want to say probably like 2007, maybe 2006, 2007. Um, and I just kind of picked his brain about what he was doing and what sort of avenues there were within wine. And, and he said, dude, you should just go do sales. That's what you should do, like tomorrow. Um, there's this new company starting or started recently called David Bowler. You should call him. And I was like, I can't. I don't know anything about wine, literally. Like I had a bottle of wine in my bag that I bought at Penn Station in the wine shop downstairs. It was a Pastu Grand. And he was like, that's a Pastu Grand. It's Gamay and Pinot Noir. And I was like, how the fuck do you know that? Um, like I didn't know anything. In my mind, I was going to save up some money and go get a job at like Aster, you know, or like Sherry Lehman, some big retailer. Um, and I would learn the ropes and it started out as a stock boy. Um, and so long story short, I just started reading about wine, trying to buy as much wine as I could and kind of teach myself. And then I randomly ran into the same guy, believe it or not, in New York city with all these people. One day, uh, I'm sitting in Benny's burritos about to go to a band rehearsal because I was still playing music, but just kind of for fun. And he sees me in the window and he comes in. He's like, dude, I lost your number, but I have a job for you. So here's my number. Call me tomorrow. 
And so I call him up and he says, I have this opportunity for you to work, not just work at a wine shop, but help manage a wine shop called Discovery Wines. Um, great. Here's the contact information. Call him up. I go for an interview. Um, I guess I did a good enough job of bullshitting my way through it. And I got hired to co-manage this shop. And so this was, I guess, 2008 at this point. So you get hired at Discovery Wine. Maybe it was seven, whatever. Get hired at Discovery Wines, um, working six days a week. It's me and one other guy, Scott Reiner. Um, and that was just kind of like being thrown into the fire. And what was really great about it was that I had this opportunity at that point as really still kind of like a neophyte getting exposed to sales reps and getting exposed to all these fabulous portfolios. Um, like one of my, the first visits was Jenny Leftcourt at Jenny and Francois bringing in Alain Rochard of Le Lou Blanc in Minervois and, um, Emmanuel Guillaume, Guillaume Brew and tasting with those producers. And at that point, not really understanding like the differentiation between what those producers were doing and what sort of like the overall, you know, kind of like the wines that we were carrying in the shop at that time was. Um, but then very quickly sort of seeing the differentiation between what importers like Jenny and Francois and Louis Dresner, et cetera, were doing that was really different from what other people were doing. Um, and so I basically went into it kind of knowing ultimately I want to do sales. This is going to be a stepping stone to get me to the place where I can do sales. And again, I was fortunate enough to have really terrific sales reps that sort of showed me like what the right things to do were. Um, and of course there were some that weren't that great. And that was also a really good example of what not to do. And with I think in less than two years, probably about a year and a half, I get this opportunity um, to go work at Polaner, you know, which basically came out of a couple other distributors offering me um, the opportunity to come work for them and thinking to myself and calling, going back to my buddy who initially gave me his business card that day on a subway platform You're and like, saying, hey, you got me that job. I'm trained now. I want to come on board. Yeah. Um, and I remember going to, uh, to Russ and daughters with him one day or no, it was Freeman. Sorry. It was Freeman's and sitting at the bar with him. And I'm like, look, these companies have offered me a sales job. I'm not sure that I want to work for them, but this is a great opportunity. What should I do? And he was like, I think you should really think about who you want to work for. Um, and he's, and I remember he said, better to be sitting on the bench on a champion team than to be in the starting lineup of a shitty team. And so I reached out to, to his sales manager the next day and just said, can I buy you a drink? And that ultimately led to me going and getting uh, my sales job at Polaner, which led to me meeting Michael Wheeler, who's the W in MFW. Um, and then five years later, starting MFW. That's pretty cool. What a journey. Happenstance. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it sounds like there was like a lot of serendipity and just like right place, right time uh, opportunities. But like, I mean, what a cool way to live life, right? Like just follow your passions from, from music into wine. And, you know, I think a lot of life uh, really is just about sort of like having yourself open, making sure that you are open and available and have 
you know, are willing to see opportunity as it passes by. So that, that, that's pretty cool. For sure. For sure. Um, yeah. So you, uh, so you started MFW, what that would have been 2011? 2012, basically. Um, I mean, thinking about it going into 2012, basically, I remember being at home in the fourth quarter, um, like December time. And that was sort of when the idea was starting to kind of manifest itself about starting MFW. Yeah. How did, but, how did that come about? Like, so at this point you were still working at planner, like I, I presume, right? Like, mm-hmm. so yep. you're, 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 you're playing, uh, you're playing for a championship team. At what point were you like, I, I want to, um, I, I want to go out on my own. So, I mean, I, I can't say anything beyond just like the opportunities that came about for me at Palaner were, were like nothing short of terrific. Um, to go there and be like low guy on the totem pole to within a couple of years um, working with accounts like Chamber Street Wines, you know, Aster Wines, who I've already mentioned several times in this, in this talk. Like I literally remember standing behind the bar at Aster at some point and just being like, I remember coming here and like buying like the case stack value wines. And now I'm here pouring wines. Um, and it's, you know, and it was sort of seeing that trajectory manifest itself was, was really cool and rewarding. Um, but getting to meet the people who still to this day are now not only customers, but friends, um, Jamie and David at Chambers, Lorena at Astor, Matt Franco at MCF, um, Ben and Patty at Slope Sellers. I mean, I can go down the list, but all these people that I got the opportunity to work with that, frankly, I really had no business working with. It was just sort of um, a chain of events that took place that put me into this position um, and gave me this opportunity. And I guess what it sort of culminated to was an opportunity to go to France with a friend of mine who I met at Palaner and he left to go work for another company for T Edward to head up the domestic portfolio. And we, we stayed friends and he just randomly was like, dude, we should go to France and go to the salons and just, just go there. Um, we both had developed friendships with Joe Dresner and Joe was really accommodating. Like if you guys want to go to France and you want to go visit any of our producers, this was, I believe the first year that Joe didn't go on the, the the annual Louis Dresner trip in the winter when they would go to all the salons in France. And they had these, you know, these visits that they had been doing for years and years and years. And they took a lot of their national customers with them and some buyers from New York would go on these trips and, and Joe, didn't go. That was the first year I believe that he did not go, um, because he was dealing with his cancer. And he told Brian and I individually, if you guys want to go to France and you want to meet up with my group, you're more than welcome to. And we were like, yes, we want to go see Marc Olivier at Pepier. We heard about this amazing visit where he opens all these old vintages of Muscadet and you eat oysters and eat his, you know, pate from Woodcock that he shot and all this uh, so we put this trip together and we went there and we visited Pepier and we went to like, you know, the big Angers tasting and the Dive and the Renaissance and all these things. Um, and we tasted things and tasted wines that were like, wow, here are some really cool things that aren't important. 
Um, and while I didn't go there with the intention that this was going to sort of like, uh, be the impetus to put together a company, it kind of turned into that by just going and seeing like, wow, here's, here's a muscadet producer that I've never heard of that's working organically and hand harvesting and fermenting with wild yeast. And I see this at a salon, um, and it's not imported. So when I got back from the trip, just the ideas kind of started to formulate about there's more wines out there. Um, I'm sure that's always been the case, but obviously it's happening more and more where there's just, there's a lot of wine. There's a lot of great wine or potentially great wine that doesn't have a home. And is there room for someone else to do this? Which saying that now might sound a little silly because that was 2012. And the idea that like, is there room in the market for somebody else? You know, fast forward, like Jason and I were literally just talking about this. We talk about this all the time. It's like, look at how many companies have come up since then, since 2012. Um, but that's kind of what got the ball rolling, was going on that trip. And then- so It sounds like even just eight or 10 years ago, the, the, the landscape was a bit different and there was a tremendous amount of, of, of space. And it, I, 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 you know, I don't want to assume here, is, are, are you sort of alluding to the fact that that's not the case any longer? Well, I guess it depends on what you're talking about. As Jason likes to say, a few months ago, we were living on planet Earth. Now we're living someplace else. Um, yes, I think even before this, like I remember Levy Dalton making a reference like, do you remember that, Jason? Was it like four or five years? No, it was more than that. When he like posited the idea of like, is the market saturated with importers? Yeah, I mean... But is it is it saturated now? I mean, it's a good question. I, there's certainly much, you know so many more people in the marketplace now. Um, but you know, I think the minute also you stop exploring, that's also you know, I, I, I what used to make me mad was when I used to just be like, oh, all the, all the great wines in France have already been discovered. It's like that's I think that's completely not true. You know, so that's what always is interesting is every time we you know go back over there, it's you know, searching for, you know, the new thing. And it's, it's amazing. There's, there's definitely still things out there t- to be discovered, but for sure now, I mean, again, I, I don't know how things are going to look into the future, but, um, b- before every, the current circumstances. Yeah. I mean, talking with Michael Wheeler, who's been in the wine business since you know 1986, which is the year that I was born. Um, <laughs> you know, he said he's never seen the market in New York like it, like it was in, you know, 2019 in terms of how many players there are in the marketplace. So for him to say something like that, it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, and I think it's a good thing, right? I think it's uh, it's an amazing thing that there's people out there really, you know, hunting to find these interesting producers because that's what makes the marketplace exciting and unique and diverse. Cool. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I guess, uh, you know, this, this, it, it, it's tough to uh, have any conversations about like the future or like what to do at this point. Right. Because like we are in this, like uh, you know, this moment in history uh, that will not soon be forgotten. That's for sure. Um, but uh, uh, with, with uh, you know, some assumptions about reality, not, not uh, failing us 
uh, in perpetuity. Uh, what, what kind of advice would you give to someone listening to this podcast who um, has a similar story? Perhaps, uh, perhaps they're an artist, perhaps they're in school for business, but have been passionate about wine. Either they grew up with it or they're just kind of captivated by, uh, you know, fermented fruit in the way that, um, you know, so many of us are at some point in our lives and they want to make wine, sell wine, get into the wine business, make a career for themselves. What, what kind of opportunity do you see in, in a market that has changed so much in the last 10 years? Hmm. Who wants to go first? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think first and foremost, there's always opportunity. Um, I agree with, with everything that Jason said um, in terms of like the idea that there's still a lot of things out there. And I, th- and I hope there always will be. Um, I think the moment that like there, there truly is nothing new to discover, then it's kind of like, what's the point? Um, so I hope that that's the case. So I think there's always room. Um, when, when we started MFW and I, and it was official, I remember calling Blake Murdoch from the rare wine company and telling him who he was someone who I had formed a really good relationship with at Polaner. And I said, Hey, I just wanted to let you know, this is what I'm doing. Um, and I jokingly said like, you know, I'm doing the last thing that anybody needs here in New York, which is another importer distributor. And he didn't laugh. He said this, as long as you're going to execute properly, there's always room in the market. And so I think you can say that for anybody who wishes to do anything in this market, whether it's be the next great Psalm, whether it's be the next great winemaker, the next great salesperson, the next great importer. Um, I think it all comes down to your intention. And that's what Jason and I talk about when we're looking for new producers. It's always about the intention. I mean, it's cool to talk about farming and winemaking, and those are important pieces, no question about it. But at the same time, I think there is a differentiation between what someone's doing and what their intention is behind why they're doing it. It's a big deal for us with MFW. I mean, I didn't talk about why I started MFW. I mean, I talked about kind of the things that came about that brought it to being, but there was more to it than that. And and really, I have to say, it wasn't until Jason came into the picture a year after we actually started the company um, that we started talking about actually putting language behind why we endeavored to do it. And I think that's the really important key. If your why is sound and is just, then there's room for anybody. That would be my advice. You know, is just be honest with yourself about why you want to do something. Cause I, I do think as maybe sort of cheesy as, as it sounds, that's where the truth is. That's what's going to drive you. For sure. And it requires, I think, uh, introspection and, uh, you know, honest self-assessment as well. And, uh, you know, with, with, you know, it, and, and frankly putting in work in understanding what, what you're about, and, um, you know, trying to find that intersection of what's meaningful to you and uh, how to, you know, spend your life. And uh, if that happens to be, uh, if, you know, it, it seems to me that like wine, whether it be, you know, farming, selling, importing, et cetera, is almost like a vehicle for, uh, uh, for you know, a meaningful existence, right? Like it's like these are, are, are because, because like 
you know, I, I, I think sometimes for myself, like I, I've done, you know, uh, had the uh, mental exercise where I, where you kind of ask yourself, like, if not wine or if not the family business, like, what would I do? Like if everything that I know right now disappeared, you know, and I had to start over, like, what would I do? And, um, you know, I, 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 I don't really know the answer exactly, but, um, I think that the, that the first thing that I would do would be to, um, you know, really spend some time reflecting on what's important to me, what's happened, why it matters, and then how I can, you know, leverage those experiences to bring value to, to others. And, uh, you know, and, and wine is really just a, uh, you know, a means to doing that. Yeah. I think that's really well said. Something that that Jason and I sort of jokingly say, but I think that it um, <clears throat> it has a lot of meaning to it. Is like we'll say, you know, <laughs> what are we doing this for? Um, but it's I think it is also that idea about the journey versus you know like the end. There 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 is no end here. Like we're we're endeavoring to do something that's infinite, which is also something that I think has to come with like why are you doing this if you're if you're trying to do something um, because you see some endpoint, you see some, some place where you can say like, I won, you're probably doing it for the wrong reasons. Whereas if you're doing it because of the actual experience of doing it, then I would say that your, your chances of doing it for the right reasons are probably a lot higher. I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Jason? Yeah, no, I mean, this is all stuff that's, big, you know, high level macro yeah, stuff that we talk about, but I mean, it's super important, especially in times like right now. Right. I mean, something that we talk a lot about with our team is, you know, this is, you know, these are the things that are what gets us through these difficult moments, right. You need to have that North star that you're always able to turn back to, you know, that, you know, it's the, what, what is it called? Mike, the, the broccoli test or, uh, what this, this, <laughs> the celery test, the celery test, right. So, so what's the celery test? <laughs> this did you come? This is just like you came up with, Mike. This is this is like a, mm. a thing, no? No, that's Sinek. <laughs> I uh, the concept makes sense, and when when we when Jason and I say the celery test, it makes sense. I don't remember exactly what it came from to sort of like spell it out to you. Um, so I'm sorry, <laughs> but it's this idea that if you really define clearly what it is that you're doing and what it is that you're striving to do, you can very quickly identify anything that doesn't fit into that. Right. So we've, we've spent a lot of time trying to define what a banana tastes like in terms of like, why did we start MFW? Why Obviously, Jason didn't start MFW from day one, but he's a, he's a partner. He's as much a, a, a part of it as I am, as Michael Wheeler, as, as all of our producers, sales team, all, customers, everything. Why did we do this? Um, we wanted to be really clear about that because intention matters and differentiation matters. Um, and you started off in your introduction to us, but... We don't see ourselves as just, we're a wine importer. We have this start and, and finish point with what we do. There's more to it than that. It's, it's deeper than that. And so putting that into language was really important to us. One of the things that we try and really instill in our sales team is this idea that 
when they're faced with a dilemma or they're faced with a decision, they should ask themselves, what is the best outcome for the customer, the producer, and myself in this situation as the part of MFW? Because those are kind of the three pillars that we see as like, if we don't have those things, we have no business. And so if we can really try and satisfy the interests of those three things simultaneously, it may not always be perfect. We may be sacrificing one of them. Maybe it's ourselves. Um, but we ultimately want to try and do what's best for those three entities. So that's kind of what the salary test is. It's being able to identify very quickly if something fits into your, your model or not. Cool. I dig that. Yeah. And I think like, as you, um, you know, regardless of like where you are, you know, in, uh, in, in the value chain at the end of the day, like it, it, you know, when you're, when you're kind of, when you're doing business with other humans, you have to see, um, your employees, your customers, your importers, your partners, like you work for them in a sense. And like, you know, I think that there's this like misconception, um, that, you know, that, that, that's commonly held. And, and I think I even held it early on, uh, in, you know, as sort of a, a young, um, a young person starting a business who was really incredibly passionate about what I did was that like, this is my vision. This is where we're going. Here's why we're doing it. Like, are you with me or not? And, um, you know, it, and, and like, I can look back now and see that like, um, you know, there was a, a hint of unintentional arrogance in it. And now I'm realizing that like what I was so passionate about is like, it was meaningful to me and still is, but in the, you don't have to zoom out very far before it becomes silly. And it's important to realize that everyone else that is involved with you on your particular mission, like you work for them, like their needs have to come before your own. Otherwise, like you're going to work really fast by yourself, but it's completely unsustainable. And if you're trying to build a movement or take a vision that you have and, and increase or multiply the impact of it, whether it be wines from Maryland, uh, you know, getting out into the world or introducing, um, you know, hidden gems from Europe to, to, to New York that no one had seen before. Um, you know, to, to sustain a business like that, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of people, um, throughout that process and working to make sure that everyone is involved, who's involved in the process feels valued and a part of the mission is just like so critical to, uh, to sustainability and and success. Fully, totally agree. Yeah. So, um, cool. Well, Hey, uh, Jason, there was something that I, I, uh, wrote down that I wanted to ask you about. I don't know if you want to talk about it or not. You can let me know. Um, I've been, uh, following on, uh, Facebook because like, what else do we do these days? Um, that, that you've been pretty involved with, um, you know, uh, uh, working to kind of reshape, uh, the wine scene in Philadelphia, it, it, at least from, uh, or Pennsylvania broadly, at least from a sort of mechanics perspective, like you, do, do you care to, to tell us about that? I'm, I'm curious. Well, it's, my, it's my favorite topic. So I mean, it's, it's a good, <laughs> you, you are an expert at this point, right? Yeah. But, but it is, it is an interesting segue from our, our last topic too, right? Because, you know, at, at NMFW, right, we strive to be advocates for those we work with and those we work for, you know? And so when, this crisis hit again, having that North star. 
And then having the situation that arose in Pennsylvania, you know, it's like I instantly knew what I needed to do. And that was I needed to sue the Pennsylvania <laughs> Control Board. <laughs> so <laughs> because they were, uh, they were, you know, hurting our, our customers and that was in turn hurting our producers. Um, but no, it's, I mean, for anybody that knows Pennsylvania, it's all, uh, it's uh, an interesting state to work in. It's one of two states that, the, both the retail sale and the wholesale sale of alcohol are controlled entirely by the state government. So it's Pennsylvania and Utah. Um, so it's been that way since, you know, after prohibition. Uh, I mean, at the time, you know, once prohibition was repealed, they gave each state, you know, the opportunity to decide their own liquor laws. And at the time, Pennsylvania had a governor that detested alcohol. He created the PLCD literally to make purchasing alcohol as inconvenient and as expensive as possible. And um, a syntax. That's literally exactly why it was created. He's on, you know, on record quoted as saying that. Um, I mean, now obviously it's morphed and changed so much. And the PLCB does some, some good things, right? I mean, it provides jobs for lots of people. It returns you know, millions of dollars in tax revenue to the state of Pennsylvania every single year. Um, but I guess the question that people like myself have is, well, how much more could we be doing? How much more jobs could there be? How much more tax revenue could could we be returning if there was this not extra tier added in between there? Um, So in Pennsylvania, unlike in New York, unfortunately, I can't just, you know, take my wine around and then a customer says, hey, great, you know, send me, you know, three cases of this. Everything has to pass through the state first. So a wine that costs uh, a retailer $10 per bottle in New York, it costs that same person in Pennsylvania $15.56 because it passes first through the PLCD, the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board. Um, <laughs> where all of this reshaping and my recent activity has been was during coronavirus. Um, Previously, again, all of these orders that restaurants wanted to buy that, you know, people selling wine to go wanted to buy, they had to get shipped to one of the PLCD stores. And then a restaurant had to go leave their premises, go to the store, pick it up, which of course, during a pandemic is not very, not a very good that's thing. A, that's a nightmare in good times. Exactly. Exactly. And so... There was a law passed back in 2016 that said that vendors, us, MFW Wine Company and others, um, should be allowed to directly deliver these orders to customers. And if those orders were directly delivered to customers, that the PLCB would not be allowed to assess all of their normal markup, right? So instead of that $10 bottle of wine being $15.56, it would be more like $13 per bottle. So still not as good as New York, but getting closer to true wholesale pricing, which is super helpful for restaurants. And also they wouldn't have to leave their restaurant to go pick it up. So coronavirus hits, uh, the PLCB decides that they're going to shut down all their stores, which is probably a a smart thing to do for public health. Um, But that unfortunately left restaurants that were legally allowed to sell wine to go that were considered essential businesses. That meant that they could not pick up product to restock their shelves. Um, And that's when I said, well, there's this law that was passed back in 2016 that says we need to be allowed to directly deliver to restaurants uh, that the PLCB was not abiding by. And so 
I, you know, I, I, I don't particularly enjoy filing lawsuits, um, but I, I do, you know, like standing up for our producers, standing up for our customers. And so I started basically emailing people like, you know, what should we do? There was a petition circulated, received, you know, thousands of signatures, but, um, you know, ultimately action needed to be taken. Um, luckily I've got a, a lawyer friend and he said, you know what, like, you're right. The PLCD is in violation of this law. Um, and so, uh, we basically sued the PLCD. Um, so it became the, uh, the first ever, uh, live streamed trial because no one could be there in person. We were doing it basically over zoom. Um, so that was kind of cool. And, uh, ultimately, yeah, the judge ruled that, yeah, the, the PLCD is in violation of this law. And we need to be allowed to directly deliver product to them. So that was really cool to beat them in, uh, in court. But of course, now the PLCD has appealed the decision. So there are, they've decided that they want to take me to uh, Supreme Court, Pennsylvania Supreme Court. So we'll be going back to court to continue fighting it because um, apparently they don't really like to lose. And I guess the question is, you know, wouldn't this help small businesses? But, you know, so like, and this would actually generate more revenue for the PLCD because these orders are still going through the PLCD. So, you know, why are they fighting it so much? It's, it's kind of crazy. And it's something that I asked myself a lot too, but they decided to do it. So we're going to Supreme Court. <laughs> so... Right. So I guess perhaps they uh, fear, um, you know, if they give you, if they give an inch that you'll take a mile and that this is just kind of like the beginning of their undoing. So they're clinging on to every ounce of power that they have. For sure. And I mean, there's, they're, they're, unfortunately their handling of, you know, the coronavirus situation has been, you know, it's, it's not been good by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and so I, I think you're, I think you're right. You know, I think they're, they're super scared that if they start letting go of some of this power of letting people sell in a more direct fashion, that's going to start cutting them out of the picture. And that's something that they don't, that they don't want to give up, you know? So they're this big, massive beast and they've got all of the power in Pennsylvania. Uh, they don't want to give any of it up, but um, it's been, uh, it's been my mission for, for several years now to keep, to keep chipping away. So at this point, is it like the state versus Jason Malumed? Yeah, I mean the 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 lawsuit will now forever go down. Will forever go down in history as MFW Wineco versus the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board. So literally, it's the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus MFW Wine Company. So that's pretty cool. Um, but uh, it's an interesting thing because you know again they're considered a Commonwealth. You know Pennsylvania is a common. It's a Commonwealth agency. So normally they'd be protected by what's called sovereign immunity. Basically they can't be sued. So we kind of had to go through some like, you know, ins and outs and channels and basically prove that a government agency is deliberately violating a law that's on record. Um, and, you know, basically we, we had a judge uh, issue something called, it's called a mandamus, basically mandating this agency of the Commonwealth to comply with the law, which you would think that would be easy to do, but apparently it's, it's not so easy for uh, the liquor control board. Right. And minimally, they're just going to drag this out forever, right? Like, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it, that's the whole point of the appeal, right? They want to drag this out as long as possible. But, you know, the day the day's going to come and, you know, I'm a patient guy. I got nothing else going on right now. So <laughs> you got a wall of whiskey. 
Right. Oh, yeah. Tempt me. I've got a wall of whiskey and time. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm ready for them. So no, but it's, uh, I mean, but this is just, you know, the, the latest uh, salvo, I guess, in the war. So this has been, again, something that I've worked on for, for a while now. I think the first time I went to Harrisburg to testify against them was back in 2015. So, um, but I mean, even before then, it's, uh, you know, just been, you know, writing articles and getting involved in this, just, you know, saying how, how bad it is for, um, you know, the wholesale business, the business of us selling wine to restaurants, selling wine to, um, you know, retailers selling wine to go. Uh, there's, there's no need for there to be a fourth tier involved. You know, it, things are, things are hard enough right now as, you know, as it, it's hard enough with three tiers, right? I mean, Three tiers of markup mandated in, you know, in the United States is tough enough, especially when you add a tariff in. In Pennsylvania, there's the fourth tier because it then has to pass through the PLCD. So, yeah, and I've got to think like an argument like that can quickly uh, win in the court of public opinion if, if, uh, if enough awareness is raised. Because like, who likes to know that they're paying fifteen fifty six for something that should cost ten? Like, exactly. it doesn't matter that we're talking about wine or anything else. Like. No one is okay with that. Yeah. I mean, sadly, there is a lot of awareness around it. I mean, something like the, a dramatic majority of Pennsylvanians want to do away with the PLCD completely. It's something like 65 or 67% of Pennsylvanians, you know, want it gone. Um, and the question is, you know, why doesn't it happen? Uh, and, you know, sadly, it's uh, an agency that has been around since prohibition, uh, and it's got its roots in deep in terms of, you know, people giving money to politicians, you know, you know, whispering in politicians ears about this creating jobs and returning tax revenue. And, you know, I'm not a lobbyist, right? You know, I'm, well, I'm, that, and I'm, it's not even a private for profit organization. It's like pseudo governmental. So it doesn't even make sense. It is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a government agency that has business like practices is what they, is what they say. So, um, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy, but, um, yeah, it's uh, it's been been an interesting ride, you know, and and it's for me it's been really eye opening again because the sadly in Pennsylvania there really is no you know um, group to really represent the interests of the wine industry. You know, there's a group that represents the interests of restaurants where we kind of overlap. There's a group that res- represents the interests of you know, the, you know, retailers where we kind of overlap on wine, but there really is no one representing the wine industry. And so it's been really, um, you know, exciting for me in that one sense, because this has been an entirely grassroots thing. You know, all the money for this lawsuit uh, was raised literally over a weekend by me sending one email to the members of the trade, you know, restaurants, retailers, but also fellow distributors that, you know, wanted to stand up for it. Um, and so, you know, again, this is, you know, the idea of, you know, being an advocate in, in action, right. Standing up for, for those that are, that are important to us. Um, and so, I don't know, it's gotten me, you know, certainly thinking like, I, I hope that more of this can be done. And I, you know, I, maybe the reason why more hasn't been done previously has been because, there isn't really a group that represents the interests of the wine industry in Pennsylvania. And so hopefully this, you know, is the start of even something bigger for, for the wine industry here. So. Cool. More power to you. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I imagine that, uh, you know, and like, I think that, you know, a lot of times change doesn't come about because there's just like 
not quite enough impetus to take on on the the effort, right? Like, I mean, it's just it's it's hard work changing things, particularly when you're talking about like institutions that are just like so deeply rooted or realities that have been, you know, multi-generational. It gets to a point where it's just like to change this, to change direction of the ship, it just requires so much effort. So, um, you know, I, I give you a lot of props. Um, yeah. And, uh, well, I'm a stubborn Jew from Philadelphia, so... <laughs> Hopefully I'll, I'll do my part. In the Not easily deterred, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. Uh, so I, I was hoping, like, I, I feel like it's been cool. Like you've got a buddy that's an attorney that's helping, right? Like you started this grassroots campaign. Michael talked a little bit about, um, you know, some of the opportunities that he has had along the way, just kind of like fall into his lap via re- relationships with, with people that you've built over time. Um, I, I'm wondering if uh, if either or both of you are interested in kind of like talking a little bit about mentorship. Um, it's something that I'm really pa- uh, passionate about, both like, um, you know, being fortunate enough to have had it in my own life uh, and benefited from it. And also, um, you know, seeking opportunities to provide um, it, it, mentorship where appropriate to others. Um, I'm wondering, uh, you know, if, if you guys have any stories or experiences or people in your life that have been like really, you know, formative for you. You want to go first? Jason? All right. I'll, well, uh, <laughs> I, I, I think it is super important. I mean, I feel like I just spoke a lot, but I, I, I mean, definitely. Role. Yeah. And there, there has been, you know, a few, I mean, a few mentors in life in general. I mean, I think to a lot of, you know, family in terms of, uh, um, you know, kind of like the more macro level mentorship, I guess you would call it. Um, but in the wine industry too, right? I mean, wine is, uh, it's, it's in, you know, it's a luxury product, as we said, right? And so to, to really start wrapping your head around a lot of this stuff can, you know, can cost a lot of money if you're just getting into it. And so for sure, you know, I, I had a lot of people along the way that, you know, were there to, you know, open bottles, right. I mean, you know, I, you know, I think back to, you know, the one person, you know, a couple really key people like opening up like old Burgundy for the first time. I'm like, Oh my God, like what the fuck is like, this is insane. Like I, I, you know, I had no idea that wine could be like this before. Um, but uh, for me too, I mean, part of the key has always been, you know, being active about it and actively reaching out, you know, um, and, you know, keeping in touch and keeping a really open network with, with a lot of people. Um, I mean, especially in the industry, you know, I, some of my closest friends are, you know, basically people that I would consider you know, competitors. Um, and so I think having that, that network of people that you can, can, can go to, uh, is super important. And now, I mean, for me, uh, it's been, you know, I guess kind of, I mean, the coolest part for me now is like, I get people emailing me being like, Hey, can I like sit down and like buy you a cup of coffee? And like, I want to hear your opinion on, you know, selling wine in Pennsylvania. Um, so I, I mean, Oh, like to me, I think the biggest thing is like, you always need to take that meeting, right? If it's, you know, those are 15 minute meetings, right? If it's, if it's a 15 minute or less meeting, like you should never say no, you know, 
that's always been like my, uh, my MO is like, I'm, I'm open for anybody that wants to reach out and, you know, even more so than that, again, like trying to actively reach out and be in touch with other people in the industry, in other companies, because it is super important, right. To have mentors, to have people along the way. Um, and like the wider you can build your community, your, your network, you know, the better that is for, for everybody. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a super important thing in the wine industry, especially. Um, but I mean, even again, like on a more, a more macro level, right. I mean, there's people, you know, in my life that have been super important, have super, you know, affected, you know, the way that I, you know, grew up or, you know, the, the visions that I hold now and kind of, you know, establish what is important for me, which, you know, is my guiding light, you know, which is why I wanted to be a part of MFW in the first place. You know, I think to people like my grandfather, um, you know, traveling with him, you know, every summer we used to take a trip together and go, you know, see a different part of the United States and then a different country, you know, when I was older uh, and being able to like see different cultures and put yourself immersed into a completely different culture when you're super young to have an understanding that, you know, no, the world is not all, you know, Big Macs and, you know, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, ice cream sundaes, you know, there's lots of other cultures out there and, you know, being able to, you know, see those people and try and, you know, see the world through their eyes was super important in terms of building this, you know, idea of empathy, which I think is really important for MFW today. So mentorship is, is definitely super important. And so I, I, you know, I, I recommend, especially in the wine industry, because it is such a difficult grind of an industry. Sometimes it feels like um, to, you know, make sure that that's a, a key part, a key component, and you know, as you're growing in the industry. Cool. Thanks for sharing, Mike. What you got? Um, well, I first and foremost agree with the idea um, of of the importance of mentorship. Uh, Frankly, I wish there was more asks. I feel like, and I don't know if it's because this industry does have a little bit of like a bougie sort of exterior to it. Like sort of the look from the outside seems, um, you know, seems like it's kind of hard to, to penetrate, that it's a little exclusive, um, which is a shame because when you, when you do start to get into it and you do start to meet people that at the end of the day, if we're bringing it down to the basic roots of where the wine comes from, like it's farmers. Um, so I, I sort of find these, these correlations to like growing up, my dad used to work part-time on farms. And so like thinking about those memories as a kid, um, like going to farms with my dad, cause like I mentioned earlier, my dad's super into hunting and fishing. Um, and as a kid going to some of these places where we could do those things were typically the places where he formed relationships with people because he worked there part-time. Um, and seeing that sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, like salt of the earth kind of, kind of people. Um, and how that now I see that when we go visit the producers that we work with. Um, so it's interesting how you do have this juxtaposition between sort of the roots of wine, but then what it can kind of be seen as from the outside. If you don't really know that part of it and you just kind of see the glitz and the glamour side of it, like not everything is about DRC for whatever lack of an example. Um, so I, I, I do wish that there was a little 
that there was a bit more of kind of like the breaking down of those walls where I have to imagine there are people like myself who probably saw this as an interesting industry and something where I could perhaps find a career, but I don't know where to start. You know, like my story was very much based on happenstance. So I do think about the circumstances like for people who just don't have those things work out for them. And like the ask to be able to go to someone and say, can I pick your brain? Can I ask you like how you got from point A to B? Um, so I do think that that's super important. Um, you know, sadly, I feel like a lot of the times when I'm meeting with people to talk about specifically selling wine, a lot of those conversations seem to be hinged on this idea that it's like an easier alternative to working retail or working in a restaurant. Like, I, literally, I can recall. But it's outside meeting, sales, right? Right. I mean, it's like I know all you're doing is like hanging out and having long lunches and sitting at home and writing your novel, <laughs> which I do say everything. And I say it a bit in jest, but not really, because I've literally met with people who have said just that to me. Like, this is what my vision of this is. How do I get into it? And then I like I'm the asshole trying to explain to them that that's not the reality. Um, but if you're at, if your question is sort of like, who have my mentors been in this industry or in life? Yeah, it's it, it kind of, it, it, it's an open it's an open question. So I guess the first thing is that I again agreeing with Jason. I think mentorship is is hugely important, um, and I would hope that given the opportunity to, to provide that, uh, whether it be myself or anyone on our, our team, that that would be something that we would really embrace and be open to because, you know, sadly there aren't enough people, I think that really, um, get that opportunity, you know, to transcend into this industry the way that I have. Um, so in order to be able to provide that is a huge opportunity for me, my mentors, um, when I got into the business, when I got my first job at Polaner, I met Michael Wheeler, who I had met sort of peripherally being a wine buyer and, and meeting him at tastings and kind of hearing about him. But I got to sit next to him in sales meetings. Um, like I remember my first sales meeting at Polaner and Peter Wasserman's presenting Burgundy. And I, I didn't really know shit about Burgundy, even though I had been a wine buyer for you know a year and a half at that point. Like, I'd never been to Burgundy. I'd never drank old vintages of Burgundy. And so I'm sitting in this presentation, looking around this room at these salespeople and Michael Wheeler and like there's a little heads, you know, kind of head spinning effect. Um, <laughs> but Michael Wheeler was really like, that was probably my first real mentor in the wine business directly. Someone who was like, this is how you do this. Um, and then I had the great fortune of getting to know Joe Dresner and that I think really inspired what came to sort of be like what is important to us when it comes to the producers that we work with. Um, so those are definitely probably the people who had the biggest impact on me, really the most like indelible impact getting into the business and really deciding what I wanted to be and maybe what I didn't want to be. Um, so Cool. Yeah. It, it seems like, um, it, it seems to me like kind of like listening to your analysis and like the idea that 
you don't get asked as much as you think or even wish or would be open to being asked for, um, you know, some of your time here and there to kind of like speak into, uh, you know, a, a, a young person's life who's, who's, intri- who's looking at wine and is intrigued by it. They're kicking the tires on this whole idea, but they're not really sure where to go first. Um, you know, it's, and, and like, I feel like that kind of ties back into, um, you know, a question that I asked before, which is like, what advice do you have for someone who's, who's, who's looking at wine in some capacity and is interested in exploring it as, you know, um, as an occupation. And it seems like seeking out mentorship or just like identifying someone who is doing something that you're inspired by and not only just like emulating it, but also like having the, um, uh, you know, courage to just reach out to that person and say, Hey, listen, I look up to you. Um, I'd like to ask you some questions. Like if you could spare 15 minutes, like I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Like I would love to ask you a handful of questions and get your honest opinion on, on where I should start. Like what a valuable way to, um, you know, to, 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 to kind of like discover, things about yourself and any sort of subject matter that you're interested in. Exactly. Exactly. And I, and I, again, I don't know if it's that sort of shell of, of our industry that seems off-putting to some people or not off-putting, but just sort of um, hard to approach, you know, like it's a bit daunting. Um, but then again, I guess if you are really desiring to do this then you kind of have to, Put yourself out there, yeah. Oh, you got to reach out to Jason. I know he has a gruff exterior, but <laughs> I used to love getting coffee pre-COVID times. So <laughs> cool. So um, I, I there, there's uh, uh, another uh, what what I so, so a subject that I want to or a question that I want to ask on the show moving forward. I, I had when I first reached out to you guys to see if you were interested in interviewing, mentioned it from the Brutal Podcast. Um, you're you're pretty familiar with um, you know the terminology, especially how, how it's kind of like risen to prominence uh, lately within like the natural wine scene, at, you know, as it relates to uh, you know, uh, wines that are, you know, made just from grapes and nothing else. And, um, but, but to, for me, uh, contextually, uh, brutal is, is a term that, um, you know, my sisters and I particularly, uh, used growing up. And I still remember it like throughout my life to describe situations that were like, so, so bad or awkward or, uh, you know, at, a, at the time that like, when you look back and you tell the story, it's kind of, it's hilarious. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering uh, if you guys uh, have a story to share, of, you know, sort of like something that happened, uh, you know, in, in your careers that, have, you know, whether it was like, you know, a, you know, a big goof up or, uh, you know, a misunderstanding or an awkward moment that when you look back on it, it's just like, it, it's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, Jason and I kind of were, were talking about this earlier. <laughs> um, and I, I, I don't have one, honestly. I'm sorry. I don't want to disappoint. And I hope that wasn't like a, a big lead up into a flop there. But I don't know if, Jason, you reflected and came up with I've got anything least, in the so. interim. I'll let you, All right. you take, okay. your, your, take your tangent first. So, 
Well, no, I mean, it's, it's not even, you know, Drew kind of fucked up my, (laughs) (laughs) my feelings on it. Like when I first read your email about like, you know, what was something it's like so brutal. It's almost hilarious. Like my first thought was like, I don't know, working in the fucking wine industry circa 2019, (laughs) 2020, Um, where where every day feels you're between like, you know, hysterical crying and like maniacal laughter. Um, that was like my first response. Um, and, but and Jason, I think it sounds like hope that five years from now we look back and this was so brutal. It was funny, right? Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Jason, what was the meme that you saw that you shared with us? Oh, I, oh, I, I forget. It was like someone that, uh, um, wasn't it someone like going to, it was like someone at the, the pearly gates. Exactly. Yeah. It's like someone had just died and they were, you know, appearing at heaven. And it was like, oh, it says here you're supposed to go to hell, but it says you uh, worked in the wine industry during uh, coronavirus and the tariffs. So we'll just uh, count that as time served. So come on in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's, yeah, there was a stretch. Uh, you know, what was it? I guess back in back in March where I would, you know, have the routine of waking up and you know, my, my motivation each day was I would watch the, uh, the scene from apocalypse now every morning where he's like, I love the smell of napalm in the board. That was, that was the only thing that was getting me through the, through the days at a certain point. So that, that was pretty brutal, but, uh, Mike, Mike will appreciate my, my other brutal story after, after many, many years traveling with him in France. And I, I, I always tell this story too, and this isn't a, a singular time too. This, this happens quite frequently, but, um, unfortunately I'm, I'm a little bit younger than Mike, so I never, uh, I never learned. Unfortunately. Well, yeah, unfortunately for you, because I never learned how to drive a stick shift, which you need to do if you're driving in France. <laughs> and so Mike usually gets the brunt of the, the driving when we're, when we're in France together. Um, right, because to run a stick shift in France is like it, remarkably inexpensive. And there's like a big sort of like, uh, uh, what, like traveler tech on anyone that doesn't know how to drive a stick. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we're, it's, I mean, to, to that point, we were talking with one of our producers in the Beaujolais and I was trying to explain to them like, Oh, you know, in America, you know, we have, you know, automatic cars and, you know, to find a, a manual car is very difficult. Like what do you call, you know, manual in French? And they're just like, une voiture. Une voiture. A, a, a car. You just call it a car. It's just, that is just all, that's the only option in France is, is stick shift basically. And so anyway, I don't know how to drive one. Well, I, I barely know how to drive one. So I'm usually on navigation duty. Um, and you know, this is, uh, you know, these trips are usually, you know, I don't know, a thousand kilometers in the car, 800 to a thousand kilometers over the course of a week. It's, it's a lot of time driving in the car. And so I've gotten very used to, to knowing the warning signs of, of Mike, which is he, first he starts doing this with his, with his neck. And then, you know, I've, I've learned that you can look in the rear view mirror and you can see Mike's eyes in the rear view mirror. So I know that if he start shutting his eyes that I have to, you know, turn the radio up a little bit louder. And then the final warning sign is when he, he takes his water bottle and he, he pours the water in, into the cap and starts pouring it down the back of his neck to, while driving with his knee. I <laughs> so usually that, usually that only happens after a, a very late night in Ventura drinking, drinking Van Jong. And that, but that once you hit that point, it, it requires a, a rest stop stop for a, a gas station espresso and maybe a couple push-ups on the side of the road. 
own. So, <laughs> but uh, very, very dangerous. But uh, yeah, it, at, at the time, it does not feel good. But looking back on it now, I, I, I guess I can laugh about it because I'm still alive, which I'm, I'm grateful for. But um, <laughs> definitely, definitely had some some good good long hours in the car with Mike. All, all in the name of uh, all in the name of finding some some cool new stuff to bring in. Indeed, yeah. and seat and seatless toilets at those yeah. rest stops. Yeah. So, do you uh, do you remember wines from like by by the trips where you discovered them? For sure, absolutely. I mean, literally, I sent Jason like a link to a website from a producer that we that we don't work with, but we, that we'd visited years ago. And like within a couple seconds, he texted me and was like, "Was that the producer that blah 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 blah?" You know. So I. <laughs> Yeah, these, I mean, these things become associations. So um, I went to a uh, dinner a couple of years ago that David Lilly from Chamber Street Wines organized uh, with, um, with the wines of Gonon, right? Very, you know, now super famous allocated San Joseph wines. And Jean Gonon is there. And David is talking to the group of people about his experiences having the wines which i always say to david like whatever we're talking about david will send me an email about something and i'll be like but you know he'll ask me a question uh, my typical response is like well david you've forgotten more than i'll ever know about this um and i truly mean that i he's someone i have a ton of respect for um and something that he said that really remained with me that dinner was probably six or seven years ago when he said when i when i taste wines I don't really think about like, you know, the vintage or what the wine is showing in this moment. I think about the experiences that I have with the producers. I think about being in the cellar with them or sitting around the table with them, walking through their vines. And um, I would imagine that Jason probably has those same experiences as I do now that we have spent so much time with a lot of the producers that we visited. Some of these are going back eight years where we've seen them year in and year out, maybe not every single year, maybe it's every other year, but now those times have all accumulated and you start making these associations less about the wine itself. I mean, of course, we still have to be objective about these things, but it does become more personal. It does become more associative with those personal connections. For sure. Yeah. Uh, So how can someone uh, find... MFW wines. Let's let's assume that the uh, majority of, of our listener base here is uh, is uh, based out of DC, Maryland, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York. Um, how can someone go about finding your wines or or supporting people who are important to you from within you know from within your fold? Um. I guess if we're talking about consumers, um, you know, first and foremost, I, I would like to think that things have gotten to the place where, you know, most areas that you referenced, I mean, they all have great wine shops, obviously. Um, so I think my first advice always was someone that's asking sort of like, whether it's how do I get into wine or how do I kind of like figure out what I like? It's always like, start with your, with your local retailer, um, and ask questions. So, I mean, the first thing would be like, people used to come into Discovery. This was one of the first things that really stuck out to me when people would come in and they'd be like, do you have wines from Louis Dresner? Do you have wines from Neil Rosenthal? 
Um, and I thought that was really interesting that people would ask about the importer. And most of our customers, they educate their staff. They're super educated. They can you know, very quickly rattle off if someone were to pose that question. Yeah, here's what I carry from, from said importer. So I think the first thing is just starting out with, with your local retailer. Um, and asking them if they're interested in our wines. We didn't offend anybody uh, this evening then posing that question. Um, I mean, from there, going to our website, looking at the growers that we work with, um, if they pique their interest, reaching out to us. I mean, we're fairly accessible. You can go to our website and contact Jason or me directly, and we'll be happy to steer anyone uh, in that direction. I think you, Drew, have steered people in our direction through Instagram and whatnot. Um, so we're always happy to, to help wherever we can. I don't know. Did I leave anything out there? Yeah. Well, <laughs> at, at MFW wine on Instagram, Mike, Mike's given up most of the, uh, most of True. the duties on that to, uh, to me and, uh, a couple other people occasionally. So that's always a good, good place to reach out. <laughs> Such a lovely day, Jason. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. But no, I don't know. Don't ask for MFW. Who cares? <laughs> Just go, go, <laughs> go, go talk to your retailer Go ask them for, you know, interesting, thoughtful, terroir-driven wine. And, you know, eventually you'll, you'll probably stumble across an MFW wine at, at some point. So, and you'll, you'll drink a lot of other really great wines along the way, too. Cool. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate your time. Uh, been fun hanging out on the show. Uh, everyone who listens to this, anyone who listens to this, I guess I should say, uh, appreciate you uh, joining us as well. Uh, if you enjoyed the conversation, consider uh, subscribing via iTunes or Spotify or however you listen to podcasts. Uh, and uh, yeah, we're going to release an episode every Monday. So um, that's the show. Thanks for listening. And um, we'll see you all next week. Thank you, Drew. Thanks. Thanks, guys.